Check. One, two, one, two. Recording. Check, check. Guys, what's up? Gabriel Masudi, learn, unlearn, optimize. Um, what spreads just as fast as a virus? Information. So we're trying to get this out as quick as possible. I got my buddy, good friend, uh, fellow jujitsu practitioner, Eric. Eric, um, give him a quick down low on your uh, credentials and what we're looking at here today. Yeah, sure. So Eric Apkin, uh, thanks for having me on, Gabe. Um, I did my undergraduate at BU, Boston University. Um, I have a Bachelor of Science in Human Physiology. I'm about to graduate with my Master of Science in Human Physiology, and my specialty for my literature work is pulmonary pathophysiology, so kind of exactly what's going on here with this uh, coronavirus, COVID out, uh, COVID-19 outbreak. So um, thought awesome, we could do a little run through. Quick, uh, real quick, guys, um, it's, you're going to hear this good on the podcast audio, but check the link in bio um, for Vimeo or YouTube links, uh, because we're looking at a graphic right now that Eric posted today, which is why I asked him to come on, talking about, um, talking about COVID-19. All yours, Eric. Sure. So um, I found this graphic. It's not my image. Um, and I actually went back on uh, the physician assistant page that I found it on. Couldn't find it uh, again, but I luckily saved it. So um, credit to whoever actually created this uh, graphic. It's obviously beautiful and very well organized. But to people who don't understand molecular basis of pathology, it's clearly very complicated. So we're going to do a quick run through and explain what everything means. And Gabe, if you have questions from more of a layperson perspective, feel free to ask me. We can break things down even further than uh, what we're going to go through here real quick. Um, so first, the most important thing about this virus is how it spreads, right? And uh, by now, everybody probably knows it spreads through respiratory droplets, so things like coughing, sneezing, any aerosol-generating procedures. That's what they're talking about. It's really important that uh, our healthcare providers have those masks, whether they be N95s, surgical masks, uh, as well as those face shields. Um, and for anybody wondering, the best mask that they could have probably is those N95s because they filter 95% of particulates. There are masks that filter 100%, but it's unnecessary. N95s are much more common. Um, and as we know, there's a shortage, but um, hopefully we get that problem sorted through quickly. Um, so moving on here, we can see if you guys can see my little uh, spotlight here. Um, here's our virus and, you know, it's a very, very, very small uh, sub-microscopic particle. Um, these are not living, nor are they dead. They're kind of in that gray area in between being alive and dead. Uh, and they're not prokaryotes, they're not eukaryotes, what we think of like a bacteria or maybe a human cell, like uh, anything like that. Um, so real quick, what we're looking at here, and you can see it's labeled as S spikes. Those are what the virus uses to get inside of the human body. So when they come in contact with cells, say, uh, somebody that is, um, infected with, uh, you know, novel coronavirus coughs on you and you now become infected, uh, these virus particles will come into contact with your cells in your lungs and they'll enter into those cells using these S spikes. So as we progress here, we can see uh, in the lungs, and this is an oversimplification, but it's not that important. There are many, many, many branches in the lungs, um, but the most important part is where we exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. That's how we actually breathe. 
Uh, and that occurs at the smallest cells in something called alveoli, uh, which are basically air sacs. Um, and you can see those here. And the way that those alveoli work are that you have basically a sac that fills with air, much like we see here, and there's blood, uh, blood vessels, very, very small capillaries. Those are only one cell thick, and that allows for oxygen and CO2 to go in between so we can exhale carbon dioxide and inhale oxygen and keep our body healthy. Um, so let me see if I can zoom in here. Can you see me zooming in? Yeah, great. Perfect. So now that you get a little bit of a better look of what's going on in the actual alveoli, the name of the game here is inflammation. Um, and that's a major player in this type of virus or this type of disease is uh, inflammation, both acute and long term, depending on how you, uh, you know, how well you recover or how poorly you recover, I should say. Um, so what's going on here is those viruses are going to come in and what's going to happen over here is that they use something called the ACE2, which is angiotensin converting enzyme 2. So angiotensin is something uh, that is circulating in your blood. It's important for regulation of your blood pressure. Um, and in order to be active, we need it to be in a form called angiotensin 2. So these ACE2 receptors are converting enzymes where they turn off angiotensin 2. They convert it back to the non-active form, which is why they're important in normal day-to-day -day life. Um, the virus uses these as sort of a, a keyhole to get into your cells. So those S spikes will interact with the ACE2 receptor and come into your cell. And this is how your cells become infected. Once inside, they reproduce, they kind of use your normal machinery to reproduce themselves. Um, and then in order to continue proliferating, continue growing and infecting you, they're going to break out. Um, usually this actually kills your cell, which can obviously be a problem. And this, this uh, diagram doesn't really demonstrate that as well, um, but they get out and then they cause more infection, do the same to other cells, which is important. And in particular, coronavirus, novel coronavirus, does this in something called type 2 pneumocytes, which are in your lungs. And these are very important for production of something that we call surfactant, which is important for surface tension. So obviously, in your alveoli, it's a, a, a lot of interaction between uh, gases like oxygen and carbon dioxide and blood. Uh, and surface tension is very important for keeping those alveoli open. Uh, so that they can fill with uh, oxygen and then that they can fill with carbon dioxide to be exhaled. Um, so when these cells are disrupted or destroyed, you have a severe um, dysfunction uh, problem with your surfactant usage, surfactant production, and that can cause collapse of alveoli or, you know, other issues. Um, and what's going on here, this is showing, is very important. Um, your cells, something like neutrophils or macrophages, which are part of your immune system, those are white blood cells, different types of white blood cells. So things that fight off infections, whether it's the common cold, you know, you just have a chest infection, uh, sinus infection, anything, they're going to be your first line of defense is your Im immune system, your white blood cells. Um, and when they become active, they sense that there's some sort of foreign invader, some sort of pathogen they activate things called cytokines, which are pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory molecules, biomolecules, um, which 
can be circulating or they can be, you know, in particular tissue, but they're very important for regulation and proliferation of inflammation, um, which is your body's natural response to any sort of injury or insult, such as, you know, just from, you know, you paper cut your finger all the way up to something like novel coronavirus. Um, so what's happening here, IL-6, IL-1, and TNF-alpha, those are all different types of cytokines and pro-inflammatory uh, macromolecules or micromolecules, biomolecules. Um, what they each individually do is less important than the fact that they are going to pro like uh, increase your inflammation. They're going to uh, promote inflammation in your body. Um, so what's happening here, you have vasodilation and increase in permeability. That's talking about your blood vessels. Um, so the first two steps in your body's response to uh, acute inflammation is to vasodilate, increase the diameter of those blood vessels. That allows more blood flow to come through to get more nutrients, get more oxygen, help fight whatever that irritant is, or get more white blood cells there, help your body to fight it more efficiently. Like any type of typical inflammation, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's particularly these two things, vasodilation and increase in permeability occur in that acute phase. So this could be seconds, minutes, hours. After that, we're gonna be talking more about long-term and it gets a little dicey in terms of subacute, subacronic, uh, things like that, but um, we'll keep it a little simple here. Um, increase in permeability allows more things to come out of your bloodstream or go into your bloodstream. So that exchange of things that are gonna be helping to fight off um, that infection or uh, you know, irritant, that cut, whatever we're talking about here. Um, so when all these things become active, part of the, what they talk about, the, the main symptoms, uh, you know, everybody that's getting tested has to be symptomatic basically nowadays, and they always look for fever. That's been the big one, your temperature. Um, that is caused by something called pyrogens, which are produced by active cytokines. Pyrogens, which are another smaller protein molecule, go to your brain. Uh, they go to an area called the hypothalamus, which is where your thermoregulatory centers are, the centers that are responsible for controlling your body temperature. Um, and this raises your body temperature to promote activity of more immune cells. And it helps to weaken whatever the pathogen is, whether it's a virus or bacteria, um, and this causes fever, which uh, obviously we know is increase in your body temperature. Um, and just for all those people out there who are thinking, you know, I'm going to take my temperature just to be safe. Uh, what we mean in the medical field by um, uh, a, you have a fever is anything above 101 degrees. So normally you're 98.6. So everything in between 98.6 to 101 or 101.5, we would consider a low grade fever. That's much less concerning than anything above 101, 101.5. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind here. Um, so that's what causes that fever. Uh, now, if we move back to this diagram, uh, obviously we're having a disruption here because there's gonna be inflammation, which is gonna cause accumulation of cells, there's going to be probably some fibrosis over time, um, you know, because you're not fighting this thing off in just one day, it's going to take maybe up to a week, maybe up to two weeks. Um, they're saying that some people are on ventilators uh, for severe cases up to maybe even 20 days, 21 days. So you're going to have more chronic inflammation that can obviously damage cells that are going on. 
your repair regeneration processes are going to have a hard time sustaining their functionality at that length of time. So your body is going to do something called fibrosis, which we can think of just as scarring. Uh, and that's its attempt to just, instead of we can't fix this, we're just going to patch the hole uh, and just say, you know, we'll come back later and see if we can fix this for now, you know, put some plaster in that hole in the wall, we'll paint it later. Um, and that can obviously cause a decrease in your uh, oxygen saturation if you're damaging those alveoli, which is the place where that, that gas exchange occurs. So this can lead to hypoxemia, which just means low oxygen concentration in the blood. Hypo meaning low, ox, oxygen, emia, blood. Low oxygen concentration in the blood. That's obviously very bad at large because you, you want enough oxygen to sustain everything that you need. Um, but in this case, it's particularly bad because it's your chemoreceptors, which are chemical receptors, will sense that you have low oxygen and increase your heart rate, increase your respiration rate, which is going to put more stress on your lungs, more stress on your uh, cardiovascular system. And it's going to make things more difficult when in reality, in any other circumstance, it should be helpful. This is going to actually maybe make things worse if you already are experiencing damage. Um, but it may help you cope in a very short amount of time with your hypoxemia. Maybe your elevation and, and respiratory rate will help get that back up. Uh, but you're already in a pretty severe stage. Um, you need some help at this point. Uh, this is where they're maybe thinking about putting people on ventilators, thinking about it. Um, later on over here, we'll see you need to be on a ventilator, otherwise uh, you might pass away here um, and there might be nothing more that can be done. Um, so what I was talking about in terms of it might make things worse when you increase your respiration rate is what's being said right here. Your increased work of breathing due to the damage and due to the fluid accumulation from that inflammation is going to make it difficult to breathe. So with every increase of respiration, you're gonna be working harder and that's going to take more energy away from fighting this actual uh, infection. Uh, and it's, it's your body's natural response. There's nothing you can do about it, but it's less than ideal. And under normal circumstances, it would, uh, it would help you compensate and you should be fine. Um, you know, we do this in exercise. You know, in exercise, you can have something called uh, athletic hypoxemia or athletic acidosis, which is alterations in your blood chemistry due to exercise. And your body naturally responds by increasing your heart rate and increasing your respiration rate. So that's what happens when you feel tired, your heart rate's fast, you breathe heavier when you're exercising. But in this case, uh, it's not achieving its goal. Um, and then if we talk about the more severe consequences of this, uh, you know, everybody's been hearing we need more ventilators. We need to help those people who are in severe stage of this disease. Um, so something that can happen is called SIRS, which is an acronym for systemic infection, uh, systemic inflammatory response sy uh, syndrome. Um, sorry if I misspoke there. Uh, and what happens in, in SIRS is that your body basically is losing the battle against uh, this virus or infection, uh, whatever you want to talk about. Um, and usually this is associated with something called sepsis, which is uh, typically um, a bloodstream infection that is very bad for your whole body. Um, and what happens here is now it's your inflammatory response is not only limited to um, 
the individual cells which are being affected. Now you've activated things called acute phase proteins uh, and component or complement, um, which circulate in your bloodstream. They're produced by the liver uh, and they're continually produced. So when you have an initial you know, inflammatory response, they become active in your bloodstream and now your whole body is having an inflammatory response. So now what we talked about earlier, this vasodilation and increase in permeability, it's not only going on in the lungs where your infection is occurring. Now it's going on on a you know, systemic scale, whole body scale. You have a decrease in blood pressure because of that vasodilation, decrease in blood volume because you're losing fluids, you're not intaking in fluids unless you have an IV, increase in permeability might force some fluid out into, the, you know, into your peripheral. That's why you might have swelling in, in your hands, feet, things like that. Um, your perfusion is going down because the inflammation might be compressing some of the blood vessels or you know, there might not be enough blood pressure and to get blood where it needs to go. So you can start having other effects elsewhere in your body. Uh, and of course, this can lead to multi-system organ failure. If they don't have enough blood volume, you don't have enough perfusion, those organs aren't going to get enough nutrients, they aren't going to get enough oxygen, and things can start to go very wrong very quickly. So this is critical um, case scenario right here. People in this situation need to be in an ICU on a ventilator, being monitored almost continuously to make sure that they don't uh, pass away. Eric, what's uh, through fecal contamination up here at the top? Right. So uh, that's something that hasn't been talked about as much in the media or anything like that. Um, I'm not really sure why. It's definitely less common, but, um, you know, viruses, bacteria, anything like that, they can spread through normal excretions or, um, you know, secretions, excretions of your body. Uh, most common transmission of this particular virus is going to be through respiratory droplets because that's the site of infection. But, you know, as it passes through your body, through your bloodstream, of course, it can be passed uh, through fecal contamination because that's the site of a lot of uh, different pathogens, whether it's, uh, or I should say, bacteria, uh, viruses, other things on a normal day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say it would be passed through things like the urine because that's typically sterile. Um, but, you know, other things like, um, you know, they say it's not being passed through sweat, but, uh, you know, other secretions like fecal contamination, as well as these respiratory droplets, where the virus actually is. Eric, I, uh, I don't have any medical uh, education mm -hmm. in my own experience. So complete lay, lay person opinions here and questions. Mm -hmm. um, what about this makes it so special and unique right now that it's causing a global pandemic? Right. So emerging or re-emerging diseases in general are, are really the target of epidemiological studies. So people that uh, study statistics of diseases, things like that. And something that they've basically come out with over the years, not just for this in particular, is that uh, emerging or re-emerging diseases usually pop up in clusters of populations where there is very little or no immunity. Um, and this, obviously, that's why they call it novel coronavirus, because it came from uh, an antigenic shift where we had a natural reservoir, uh, what we would call a natural reservoir of this virus in uh, wildlife. And uh, that's what they're saying. The origin of this uh, virus is um, from, uh, I think it's pangolins um, and bats, things like that. Um, so when you have- Penguins, Eric? 
pangolins. Oh, uh, pangolins. It's something I, I believe is basically like a, imagine a mix between an anteater and uh, an armadillo. Um, wow. And they're very popular for consumption, use in alternative medicine, things like that. Um, why they were there is not important. What's more important is that they were there and we might have had an antigenic shift where that natural reservoir, they mutated and now the ability of the virus to spread to humans was possible. Obviously, if humans have never experienced this before, um, this is gonna be an issue. Humans do come into contact with coronaviruses on a, you know, probably on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, which is why you would see it on the back of things like Lysol disinfecting cans, things like that. But this novel coronavirus, we have never experienced before. So when it started infecting people, we had no natural immunity. And then basically it's up to your body to produce antibodies against it. And the way that would work is you have something called antigen presenting cells in your blood that would recognize virus cells, pathogens, anything, and say, hey, this isn't supposed to be here, and now take it to a different part of your body where you can now produce antibodies using um, whatever protein structure that virus or pathogen has. And antibodies would then be able to attack and fight off any future infection. But the problem with this coronavirus is that we don't have any of that immunity ready to go. And it's so dangerous because it's affecting your lungs, which are obviously essential for life because you need to breathe. Uh, so your body can't respond quick enough before you get very sick. In some people, they're completely asymptomatic uh, or they you know, experience a very mild um, disease. Um, that might mean that their immune system is stronger or maybe they, have a, they you know, got, were contaminated with a weaker strain, infected with a weaker strain of the coronavirus. They're saying there are multiple strains. They're saying there's also other uh, factors like your blood type, um, whether you've been exposed to it frequently or infrequently, uh, things like that. There's a million different factors to this, but the fact that we've never seen it before is really the reason that this is so uh, sort of groundbreaking and um, a big deal. Eric, did talk about how sticky the, um, the, the, uh, this thing is, these S spikes here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, when you look at this thing, the, the images, it's beautiful. It yeah. Just, it's, From it's, a scientific standpoint. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot yeah. of people probably think it's very scary and, um, abstract concept people that yeah. you know, don't have experience with, uh, microscopic, uh, you know, level molecular things might think yeah. this is pretty scary. No, and, and I don't mean that this is beautiful. And I just mean the actual image of this thing. It's got, it's this, it's this round sphere, obviously with these beautiful, like red little spikes on it. Right. And right. Is, that, is that the S spikes that, that you're talking about? Is so there's, it's so sticky. The S spikes are just the term for these transmembrane proteins that are on the surface of it that uh, help with entry. There's a lot of different transmembrane proteins on the surface or, you know, not even transmembrane, maybe external membrane proteins on the surface of uh, every cell. Yeah. Um, but some of those that you're probably seeing in those pictures are S spikes. Uh, as for how sticky it is, um, I'm not sure if that is particularly why. I'm not a virus expert. Um, I just, you know, understand. When, Eric, when they say, but like, have you heard like it, it lasts this amount of time on this right. service, X amount of time on that service? So it, that, that has to do with the virus's ability to simply survive. Um, and a lot of viruses have something called an envelope around them, a protein envelope. Some of them don't. Uh, 
those with, this, those with the envelope are going to be more survivable. They have extra coating. Basically, think about they have an extra sh coat of armor on them. Yeah. Um, and they're saying things like it can last up to 24 hours on cardboard, uh, maybe 48 hours or longer on steel, four hours in the air. Um, that one's a pretty big deal because, you know, yeah. for our healthcare providers, uh, a patient may, might walk in and not realize they have the coronavirus and might cough into the air. Uh, and then, you know, if you perchance walk, were to walk through that cloud, maybe even up to four hours later, uh, might be an issue uh, depending on flow of air and things like that in the area. So this thing goes down into the lungs. Down in this diagram over here, you were talking about basically the barriers. Uh, uh, how do you pronounce this? Alveoli? Yeah, like, the alveoli. So alveoli is that is that where does where does bioflavonoids play into this? The connective tissue is that basically what you're talking about? No. So the alveoli are imagine basically in your lungs you have groups of these alveoli which are basically like little uh, balls. Imagine and they uh -huh. they're, they they group together in clusters in little sacks. Yeah. Uh, and these alveoli are extremely extremely small, microscopic. They're like one millimeter thick one centimeter uh not one centimeter one millimeter or less thick um and they have a single cell lining around them of epithelial cells and endothelial cells which make uh these capillaries here where my spotlight is uh-huh so this is where your gas exchange occurs so oxygen would come in and fill the alveoli blow them up like a balloon almost got it um, and then gas exchange occurs across the, uh, the membranes here uh, through those is, one. Is that the where bioflavonoids are, the membrane? So I'm actually probably, yes, uh, bioflavonoids are just around in these membranes, maybe, you know, in the plasma and cytosol in the serosal fluid here. But yeah. um, I don't think they play a role in the actual exchange itself as, uh, as much as maybe we think. Because, well, ba basically, um, what I was told in this other thing that I, I studied, I wanted to run by you, this mm -hmm. thing comes in the lungs here. Let me get, you can see my arrow, right? All right. Yep. This thing comes in the lungs here and basically breaks down the perimeter of the lungs and rather, and lets liquid in. That's like, the, right. the, and what it breaks down is like on a grapefruit, like the, the white stuff that hold, that's the divider of the grapefruit. Sure. That, that's quote unquote bioflavonoids. And that's why vitamin C, they, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but why people have been having a lot of benefits with using high doses of vitamin C because the vitamin C helps to rebuild this perimeter here, if you will, to stop letting the uh, liquid in and, and try to give the body a chance to fight. Right. So those bioflavonoids you're talking about are going to be useful in, uh, you know, regeneration of those cells that are being disrupted because they're a big part of those membrane components, mm -hmm. um, much like other proteins and nutrients. Um, so the, the breakdown of the perimeter here is going to be playing a role in uh, where the infection is occurring in these type two pneumocytes. Yeah. Um, those, what you're talking about, um, the, when I was mentioning earlier, the surfactant, the, which is important for surface tension that has to do with, uh, the fluids and the cert, like the ability of your cell to hold back this wall of basically blood and fluid, which is going to be in here and yeah. basically keep it just on the surface, uh, so that you can uh, allow for gas exchange. Now, when that surfactant is disrupted, you're going to lose the ability to 
um, maintain the surface tension. It's going to start flowing, leaking maybe. And that's why you that, have that, that type of pneumonia up. also. Would you consider it a type of pneumonia? Yes. That can cause the type of pneumonia that we're usually seeing in these patients because of that fluid that's now being let loose uh, basically because of the- that's over here, Eric. Increased exactly. breathing, right? And then it's the, the harder you try to breathe, it's like the more it feeds it? Uh, it could be. Um, I would say it's you're just getting- uh, less and less efficient at breathing because it's disrupting your ability to exchange as well as breathe because of the fluid that's there. So not only are your cells actually being disrupted, now there's fluid in your lungs, which is gonna make it more uncomfortable, more difficult to exchange gas, uh, things, uh, we could go down the list for a long time. Yeah. Um, the, the bottom line is this thing comes in the lungs, you gave a very detailed and eloquent es explanation, but this thing comes in your lungs, breaks down the perimeter and causes fluids to go in yes. through a series of what you just broke down and eventually spikes your body temperature and right. causes severe inflammation that then sends you basically to a respirator. And, and, you're, and, then, and then what you called it sepsis, which is, I, I hear, uh, like a septic, right? It makes you septic and pollutes the body because right. it becomes systemic. And then now all the pollutants, everything's breaking down. So your whole entire body becomes toxic and you're in big trouble. Every, it can't fight itself. Right. So somewhere in between right here and right here is probably where you're going to see people going to intensive care, going, be, being seen by these critical care specialists, maybe getting put on a ventilator. Uh, as the work uh, becomes more difficult to breathe, you're going to obviously require more support. Uh, and sepsis and uh, systemic inflama inflammatory uh, response syndrome are two separate things, but very closely associated. Uh, usually they talk about in systemic inflammatory response syndrome, the SIRS being caused by sepsis. So the fact that this could turn into sort of a bloodstream infection might lead you to SIRS. And then you have something we would call the cytokine storm, where now your inflammatory response is completely blown out of proportion you have a cascading effect where it's only getting worse and worse. Uh, and this is the only time, you know, they're saying don't take steroids, corticosteroids, unless you really have to, because uh, it'll suppress your immune system. This is the time when that is actually indicated. You need to suppress that cytokine storm so you don't have as much of a systemic inflammatory response. You want it to be very local so you don't have damage and off-target effects. So, Eric, um, two things here. I heard like elderberry because it causes mm -hmm. inflammation in the body. This is where the, it could be dangerous to take elderberry because the exactly. body, but not not over here prior to where you're building your immunity and you're not you're not, right. so, you know, we're not giving medical advice here, but this is just- Obviously, yeah. But So on a day-to-day -day basis, elderberry, which is uh, promotes cytokine proliferation, um, is probably not really a big deal. Uh, and a lot of people like the taste of it, whatever. They might use it for many different reasons, whether it's for actual health benefits or they're just using it to make a drink or a dish or something like that. Um, but I was reading something the other day which said uh, people should be careful if- they think they might have coronavirus. Uh, it might help uh, in the short term, but later on, it might actually make things worse. And basically, the the end of the discussion came out to to be safe, avoid it unless you know you're on it by prescription from some sort of medical uh, official. Eric, what's the deal with Advil? I've been hearing this thing about Advil going around. Right. And you want to elaborate? Yeah, sure. So Advil uh, on it's. Act, mechanism of action actually increases the number of these ACE2 receptors right here on the surface of uh, the cell. 
Um, so obviously, like we talked about earlier, this virus is using these ACE2 receptors um, to get into your cell. So if you increase the concentration of them on the cell, it's only going to allow more virus to come in. Eric, talk to me about that, that interaction. So I have a cell, right? Mm -hmm. And on that cell, I have, I have the perimeter of my cell. What's that made up of? So the perimeter of the cell is going to be something that we call a phospho, a bi, bilayer that's made up of phospholipids. And then um, so basically that's like it's a little force field and these right. things here. So when I take Advil, it produces more of the enemy that breaks that down to let them in. So what happens is on that membrane that we're talking about, think, think about like a little layer around your cell. Um, you have proteins and different receptors there for many, many, many different reasons. And they change depending on where that cell is in your body. Yeah. Um, in the lungs, we have a lot of these ACE2 receptors already. Uh, and similarly, in the kidneys, places where there's a lot of blood flow, you tend to find these sorts of things because it's very important for modulation of blood pressure. Um, when you take Advil, those uh, little things, those membrane proteins like ACE2, uh, some of them basically grow more. Your body puts more of them on the membrane so that you can accomplish more of that task. Uh, in this case, when you take Advil, you increase the amount of the ACE2 receptors on the membrane that allows the virus to do its job more effectively. And obviously we don't want that because we're trying to prevent the virus from doing whatever it wants. Uh, so that's why they're saying, don't take Advil, take Tylenol instead, because it's not uh, you know, an ACE2 promoter. Like, uh, like other types of, of painkillers, is there anything else besides Advil that contains this? So what they're saying now is actually uh, paracetamol, which is very popular in Europe, uh, is very efficient and in helping with those things like the fever. It can help bring down your fever, help uh, be anti-inflammatory systemically, things like that, and will allow your body to still do its job but make you feel less of the side effects. Um, the only things I've heard... Uh, I obviously don't want to give any sort of medical advice, but I've been reading a lot of articles about this for the past two weeks and discussing with one of my uh, uncles lives in Puerto Rico. So obviously he's very concerned because they have very limited access to critical care down there. Um, and he was asking me several weeks ago about uh, chloroquine. Um, so I think something that's important that we should discuss is everybody obviously probably read about the man who unfortunately passed away because he took uh, chloroquine phosphate, which is designed for treatment and cleaning of uh, koi ponds. And his wife, unfortunately, is also in critical condition. I'm not really sure what her status is now over the last 48 hours. Um, but something that's important to remember is that um, you shouldn't do anything or take anything unless a medical practitioner tells you to or prescribes. Did you just say that they took something that was made to clean koi ponds? Yes. Well, so wait, how did that go down? So what happened was um, if, uh, you were watching President Trump's uh, briefing, his corona daily coronavirus task force briefing, and he mentioned that uh, there's an investigation going on into something called chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. It's a, a drug that's commonly used as an anti-malarial as well as an immunosuppressant. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm assuming that somebody basically said, oh, well, he said that that's going to work. Let's find some and take it. And they found it in their cabinet. Because chloroquine phosphate, which is different than hydroxychloroquine or simply chloroquine, um, is used commonly to kill uh, bacteria and amoebas maybe that would be in something like a koi pond or a fish tank. Got it. So unfortunately, this couple took it and uh, the man 
uh, was in critical condition and passed away. And the wife also was in critical condition to my knowledge 48 hours, 72 hours ago. I'm not sure what her status is now. Um, and that's obviously very unfortunate. Um, but the reason that they're saying that might be an option for treatment is because chloroquine acts as something called an ionophore. And if we look right here, RDRP, which is RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, viruses contain either RNA or DNA, which is their genetic material. Coronavirus, in particular, SARS coronavirus 2, which is this disease that we're dealing with, um, contains RNA. So it uses this machinery to replicate and make more of itself. Oh, wow. Um, in order to prevent this from functioning, there are different things, particularly zinc, uh, which is, or something like azithromycin, which is ZPAC, a very common uh, antibiotic, um, prevent this machinery from operating. Oh. But you have to be able to get it into the cell in order for it to do its job. That's where chloroquine comes in, or hydroxychloroquine comes in. Okay. It acts as an ionophore and will transport those things across the membrane and into the cell so that they can stop this from working, essentially stopping the virus from reproducing, prolif proliferating, and continuing to infect you. Mm. So this thing's doubling itself. Yeah. So with every cell, it's not just doubling, actually. Once it goes in, it produces hundreds and hundreds of copies of itself. And then once it breaks sure. out of your cell, it goes on. So just infecting one cell can result in the infection of hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of cells. Because uh, these viruses are extremely small. They can pack a ton of themselves inside one cell. And then once it rips open, it's going everywhere. Oh, my God. It yep. uses the cell like a little, like a little incubator, like, exactly. like a, like a exactly. little alien host. Exactly. Dude, that's crazy. On a, it's like literally like the movie Alien on a molecular level. And then instead of like one of those face eating mass things, a whole, a whole slew of them. That is basically what happens. And, you know, when you think of that, it, you think of it ripping through the, the guy's chest or the guy's yeah. stomach and popping out. <clears throat> that's essentially what these viruses do. They perform something called lysing of the cell. They, they cut open the wall and burst the cell and they all come out. That cell dies, oh, obviously, shit. in that yeah. process. So not only is it disrupting and damaging cells from normal function, it kills them at the end and produces more of itself in the more of itself in the process. It's like it's like uh, like Game of Thrones, dude, where like it kill and then it, it uses the dead people to like fight for itself. It's just exactly. like holy shit, Eric. Yep, that's wild, man. Yeah. Um, any other any other advice? Obviously, washing your hands, social yeah. distance, all the stuff we've been hearing. But you got anything else besides the Advil and don't take koi pond cleaner? <laughs> definitely, no, no definitely, I would say the most important thing here is that we all need to remain calm and go about our day to day business as much as we can while maintaining social distancing. And by saying that, I'm not saying you should be going out and going to the office. I think working from home is great. Keep your social distancing as much as possible. Stay at home if you can. <clears throat> um, and washing your hands, obviously very important. Don't touch your eyes, mouth, other mucous membranes. Don't put your fingers in your nose, um, you know, things like that. Uh, what's very important here is that we need to keep our chins up and we need to keep, uh, you know, a positive outlook on this. This is not the end of the world. This is not the apocalypse. Um, we're going to make it through this and it's going to be tough and people are going to suffer, but if we all stick together, we can make it through this on the other side. So, you know, you got to look out for your neighbors. You got to look out for your community if you can. Look out for your family. Look out for your friends. Check in on people. 
you know, your elders, senior citizens, they might be really afraid right now because they're saying this, this uh, virus is much more severe in uh, elderly people with who might have a compromised immune system or people who have a compromised immune system in general. Other comorbidities as well, diabetes, obesity, things like that could all play a role here. Eric, is it true that, that they're restricting the ventilators like they did in Italy already here? And uh, uh, I think in New York, I heard that for like 55 and over. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure yeah. of that. It wouldn't surprise me if at some point they do need to establish guidelines for picking and choosing who's going to get the ventilator, which is obviously a life-saving piece of equipment. Again, uh, it, it doesn't cure what's going on here, but it yeah. helps you to breathe and eliminate this hypoxemia. It can save your life and allow your body to do its job, fight off this infection, and it'll breathe for you so that you don't have your body basically doesn't have to sustain itself. We can sustain it for you by using the ventilator. Ideally, okay. they'll produce enough or find a way to flatten this curve enough where they have enough ventilators already, but we're not there yet. Eric, the, the scar tissue other than depletion of oxygen, is there mm -hmm. anything else from like a, what's the word, like a physiological standpoint to where it's mm -hmm. going to cause nerve, like things like I have going on in my L5S1 right now where that's going to hurt inside the body afterwards? So because of its location, I wouldn't say it's going to cause so much nerve uh, things. That would be uh, definitely more so if it were in the brain or the spine. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's location in the lungs, you know, I've been reading a couple studies um, <clears throat> that said basically they're finding even in younger patients who are completely asymptomatic at the time of their infection, these people might have up to 20 to 30% decreased pulmonary function due to the fibrosis that occurs in their pulmonary tissue because of the infection. Wow. Obviously that can be very bad depending on your, you know, pulmonary status before you were infected. You know, if, if you, uh, you know, have something like COPD, uh, that's going to be a really big deal. And this virus is already going to do way more damage to you. So if you survive afterwards, um, you could be in, in trouble. So uh, Eric, that, that decrease, that scar tissue, that's not coming back after is what you're saying. Uh, it would be, it depends. We're going to have to keep looking at it over a long uh, time course here. I would say probably not because typically fibrosis occurs as a response to chronic inflammation or irreparable acute inflammation and damage. So if you've noticed a, a decrease in your wind right now, that, that could be a, a, a possibility. It could be, um, or it could be that we're all getting out of shape, being unable to go to the gym. Um, but I would also say something that I recommend is, you know, we know exercise has positive effects both you know, for your health in general and for your mental health, which is really important right now because a lot of people I'm sure are feeling a little cabin fever, a little stir crazy in their house. And you know, some people that are already struggling with anxiety or depression, whatever it may be, probably are really struggling right now just to deal with this. Yeah. Um, you know, we know exercise increases things, you know, different chemicals in your brain, which help you feel happier. They do the same things that anti-anxiety drugs and antidepressant drugs do. So, you know, get a little bit of exercise in, whether it's doing, you know, five minutes of jumping jacks, push-ups, do a little bit of yoga. You can follow Gabe's uh, great teachings here. You know, we have great access to, um, through our association, people that are offering different things. Do anything to keep yourself active, I would say. Yeah. Dude, Eric, thanks so much, brother. Sure, no problem. I appreciate your time. And uh, if you want to jump back on, you find an article or you find something cool you want to talk about, bro, just shoot me a text and uh, we'll make it happen like we did. Guys, thanks, thanks so much. Check out the link in bio.
Um, I'll put Eric's, you got you on Instagram and all that, Eric? Yeah. Yeah. So if you have any questions for him, I guess you can shoot him a DM. And uh, again, YouTube, Vimeo, if you're hearing this on the, on the audio podcast anywhere, uh, so you can check out the diagram we did. All right, guys. Peace out.